Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Speaking of Resilience podcast. I'm your co-host, Dan Wirth, with the Groundwork Center for Resilient Communities. And I'm your co-host, Kate Madigan, with the Michigan Climate Action Network. Thank you for joining us for the first in a series of podcasts that will explore how we move forward rapidly and equitably toward clean energy in Michigan. Leading scientists urge us to cut global climate emissions in half this decade to avoid the worst impacts of climate change, and we need to be carbon neutral by mid-century. This podcast will explore how we remove roadblocks to a carbon neutral Michigan, and in a way that centers justice and creates good jobs. We need to be decarbonizing our electricity sector, our buildings, and transportation, and also changing our food and farming systems. Today, our guest is Dr. Missy Stoltz from the city of Ann Arbor. This is an all hands on deck moment, no matter where you are in society. And no matter what motivates you about this issue or racial injustice or COVID injustices or climate change, whatever it may be, um, this is a moment in time where transformation is possible. It's called a disaster window of opportunity in kind of theoretical literature. And that window will close. At some point, things will go back to something and it'll be a lot harder to affect change. And this is the exact moment when it's really important for people to step up and to get involved. Today, our guest is Dr. Missy Stoltz from the city of Ann Arbor, who will talk about A to Zero. Their detailed plan was just adopted by the City Commission, and now Ann Arbor has the most ambitious climate goal in the nation, carbon neutral by 2030. Yeah, up here in northern Michigan, both Groundwork and the Michigan Climate Action Network have been working on ambitious city climate goals for some time. Two summers ago, Traverse City became the first city in Michigan to pass a community-wide 100% renewable energy goal, with all of our electricity coming from renewables like wind and solar. A few months later, inspired by TC, Petoskey adopted an even more ambitious community-wide goal of 100% clean electricity by 2030. We were inspired by the cities leading the way from Detroit to Ann Arbor to Grand Rapids, and all this action has helped create a real contagion among other cities around the state for clean energy and climate goals. In the work that we were doing in Traverse City just a couple of years ago to lead toward these goals, you know, that was all before a lot that has happened in recent years, like the IPCC report, the where the world scientists made headlines calling for a need to cut climate emissions in half in a decade to avoid the worst impacts of climate change, and also for all of us to be carbon neutral by 2050. That was a really important turning point. And then there have been student strikes, and we've been seeing climate impacts. And moving to 100% renewable electricity, like those goals set, is a really critical piece of moving off fossil fuels. It's a key start. With this plan, Ann Arbor is setting a carbon neutral goal. So it's, it's one of the first in the nation to address really every sector and moving off of fossil fuels. It's wonderful to see all these initiatives come together and sort of learn and grow from each other. And we're seeing local schools, governments, businesses, all looking for clean energy and low carbon initiatives, which is a wonderful uh, outcome of this whole project. And now we're starting to actually be able to connect and leverage these local wins and develop some larger projects up here in Northwest Michigan. Yes, so much of the leadership on climate right now is happening at the local level, at the city level. And the local government that it's at the forefront nationally right now is Ann Arbor. And joining us today is the person really leading the charge in Ann Arbor, Dr. Missy Stoltz. 
Missy is the Sustainability and Innovations Manager at the City of Ann Arbor, and she's responsible for ensuring that Ann Arbor meets its climate and sustainability goals and to make Ann Arbor one of the most sustainable and equitable cities in America. In her short time there, in just two short years, she has been at the helm as Ann Arbor set a goal to be carbon neutral by 2030, the most ambitious city climate goal, and created a detailed plan to get there, which was just unanimously passed by the city. She has called it a moonshot goal for Ann Arbor, and I think that's a nod to her previous work as a program manager at NASA. Here's our interview with Missy. So welcome, Dr. Missy Stoltz. We are so excited, and it's such a pleasure to have you join the podcast with us today. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Dan and Kate. So first, I'd love it if you could tell us a little bit about your background and about yourself. How did you end up working for the city of Ann Arbor and leading the Carbon Neutrality Initiative? Sure. Yeah. So I'm a Midwesterner. I grew up in Indiana and I was always drawn to the ocean, actually. And so I decided I wanted to be a marine biologist, went to the East Coast. And in my undergraduate uh, training, we had to take a course on environmental ethics. And it happened at that time that the professor I was working with was really interested in the ethics around climate change. And it was my first formal introduction to the topic. And I was done. Realized everything I cared about, whether that was crazy big megafauna like humpback whales or great white sharks that like traditionally make people really excited about marine biology, or the people I loved and cared about or the places that I find so beautiful and mysterious, all of them are going to be affected by climate change. So I pivoted and I finished my undergraduate um, and went on to a new program that had just started at Columbia University focused on climate and society and really focused on this centerpiece of understanding climate science. I'm not a climate scientist. I can't do climate models, but I can understand them and I can interpret the results from them. So it was this intersectionality between kind of the science, the policy, the economics, uh, the human behavioral elements. And that's where I found my love. So I have spent my entire profession working in that space with local governments, indigenous populations, tribal governments, as well as a little bit internationally. Um, And I think I'm really, really blessed because I know exactly where I want to work forever and ever. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. And you have your PhD. You have your doctorate. I do have that thing. I do. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty good. What is that focused in? So I did my PhD at the University of Michigan. So I worked for about a decade and then decided I was um, candidly tired of certain doors not being open to people who didn't have a PhD, especially things like the National Climate Assessment. Most of the people who contribute to the U.S. National Climate Assessment, especially as lead authors, have to have a PhD. And it just didn't really make sense to me. And as many people know, the best way to change a system is from the inside. So I decided to go on and do a PhD at the University of Michigan. And I created my own PhD. I um, actually have two because I am perhaps not a very wise person. It's in urban and regional planning and natural resources in the environment, and it's in urban resilience. So the urban comes from urban planning. Resilience is really, really strong in natural systems thinking and theory. So I combine them to think about urban systems and how we increase the resilience in those places. Wow. So that is really perfect for what you're doing now. I like it a lot. Yeah. Yeah. It's a fun intersection of a lot of different topics. So let's jump into the very exciting news that the Ann Arbor City Council just last week unanimously adopted the carbon neutrality plan that you've been working on. It's amazing. Congratulations. This is one of the most ambitious plans and goals of any city in the country right here in Michigan, Ann Arbor. It's leading the way. So tell us about it. What is this? What does this mean? Why is this so important and ambitious? 
Yeah, so Ann Arbor City Council in November of 2019 unanimously passed a resolution declaring that we had a climate emergency and that as it's true in an emergency, we need to act like it's an emergency. And so that meant that we had to rethink how we operate. We had to really kind of question what we prioritize and how we invest. And at the same time that they passed this declaration, they set a goal that the entire Ann Arbor community, every resident, business, we don't really have industrial sectors, but our institutional sectors, um, should aspire for being carbon neutral by 2030. And then in passing that resolution, they said, we want to see a plan for how we could do that by the end of March 2020. So our office took a collective deep breath and got to work. And what we decided out the gate really early was that it wasn't enough to figure out how to achieve carbon neutrality in a decade, which is ambitious. And the science tells us, in fact, that we, we need to be on par um, with that pace and that magnitude, especially high capacity places like Ann Arbor is. But it would have been a misstep if equity and justice weren't at the core of that work. And so we made the goal of not just figuring out how we would transition, but how we would have a just transition to community-wide carbon neutrality. And so that's what the plan lays out. Um, it has at its, its heart, sort of the foundation, if you will, or the pillars of it are seven strategies. And those are the things that are fairly immovable. They're the things that hold everything together. They're things like powering our electrical grid with 100% clean and renewable energy. And then, of course, electrification, transitioning our natural gas, our coal, our propane, our gas and diesel engines over to electric now that it's clean burning. So strategies like that, those are, those are the seven kind of strategies, and I'll happily walk through the seven if folks are interested. And then surrounding those strategies are 44 actions. And those are um, perhaps the most malleable and flexible in the plan. Those are what came out from public engagement as the key things our public wanted to see, as well as our technical advisors, what they proposed as being technically possible, and the public said, this is socially acceptable. These are the kinds of things we wanna see advanced. Now those, um, in addition to the plan, we've created a governance framework that talks about how the plan will be living and change. We've created a prioritization framework because those actions, we won't do those 44 actions, I can tell you right now. Some of them will happen. Others will be wildly successful and will happen at a pace that isn't even anticipated. And others won't work. New technology will displace them. Um, the political climate will shift, whether that's at the federal level down to the local level. And so we had a framework, this prioritization framework that allows other activities to be evaluated with the same rigor that the initial 44 actions were. So that's um, A20, it's our, it's our plan, it's our roadmap, if you will. There'll be stops along the way to our destination, but the idea is the destination is a just transition to carbon neutrality. That's fantastic, so inspiring. Thanks, Dan. Um, and, yeah, and we've done some work up here, Traverse City, Petoskey, other communities with these ambitious goals. I think a lot of times we run into, where's the money gonna come from? You know, how is this, how are these major shifts gonna be paid for? and who's gonna do them and who will benefit and who will pay the costs. And so I wonder if you could talk a little about sort of the scale and cost of this project and if you've had any pushback and sort of how you respond to that to keep pushing this forward. Yeah, it's an excellent question. So the other thing we created with the plan was an investment scenario. And so um, this got a little bit of press, the number that came out from the plan, it came um, in at just about a billion dollars to do everything that we said in 10 years. And that's a big number, right? I want to also put that in perspective that a year ago, Ann Arbor voted for a billion dollar bond for our school system. Yep. Right? So we're not saying that's what we're going to do. But what was missing from that narrative is an investment. It was framed as a cost, right? And most of the things that we talk about in our quest towards carbon neutrality, not all of them, but many of them are investments. 
right? So a dollar invested in energy efficiency for our utility DTE is saving six to $7 in terms of cost avoidance, right? Investing in resilience, which we're talking about today, has an inordinate payback in terms of an, a cost of uh, avoiding a disaster or recovering quicker from that disaster. So what we attempted to do was to reframe the narrative and really be honest about where there were costs and where there were investments. And it's not always clear, the, the same person maybe paying for it isn't always the one that gets that the value of that investment. Mm -hmm. And most of the time that's actually the city that's paying for some of those costs, but residents or our commercial businesses are actually getting the savings. And that's okay, right? That's good government, I would argue. That's exactly what we should be doing. So that's one way that we've sort of shifted that narrative a little bit. Um, and then the other side is the cost of inaction. Mm -hmm. Nowhere in the equation uh, do we honestly talk about the fact that we're experiencing the cost of our greenhouse gas emissions. Mm -hmm. right? We're experiencing them in increased disasters, both in terms of number, frequency, duration, the return interval of disasters right, is getting shorter and shorter. And so we're already paying a societal cost. We just don't calculate it in the same way. Right. So we put a social cost in, of uh, carbon onto calculations from 2000 to 2018, and we actually showed I think it's $2.8 billion cost that Ann Arbor, just in those 18 years, uh, owes society for wow. gas emissions. And then we calculated the cost of not taking action going forward and then the, the avoided social cost of carbon by taking action. Again, that's only 18 years. We, you know, we have 150 years plus, 200 years plus of greenhouse gas emissions that we haven't accounted for. So it's, it's a softer cost and it's hard for society to understand, but it really was that pivot to say, Yes, a billion dollars is a lot of money, but we're going to pay a lot of money if we don't act too. So this is not a all or nothing equation that we're talking about. Yeah, mm -hmm. no, fantastic. And do you think this is Ann Arbor specific? Uh, can other cities be this ambitious, have the same conversations, or is there something in the, you know, history of Ann Arbor that makes it special or able to do this? I feel like I have to say, of course, there's something special in Ann Arbor, <laughs> um, just to put that out. But no, no, I think all of this was intentionally meant to be transferable. And in fact, one of the criterion we used as we were evaluating actions were things that could scale. You, I mean, I know this sounds silly, but greenhouse gas emissions, as well as climate impacts, don't respect geopolitical boundaries. Right? They don't mm -hmm. sort of say, well, good job, Traverse City. You've done a, you know, a fabulous job getting your emissions to zero. So we're going to skip over you with this tornado that's moving through. You know, like that's just not, we all, I know that's silly, but the point is the atmosphere doesn't care where emissions reductions come from, right? So we need to do everything that we can here. But I felt like it would be a shame, as did the whole team looking on this, if we didn't think about solutions that were transferable and scalable. So regionalization is a key part. We have 68 partner organizations. Actually, I'm sorry, that's not even true anymore. I think we're up to 70, maybe 71 partners now. And a number of them are regional entities because we need to be working regionally to find a lot of these solutions. So yes, it is. most of the things in here are transferable. Some of the policy change discussions are relevant and would be available to anyone in Michigan if we were able to move those forward. And on this topic, I mean, we see so much um, contagion when you look at cities mm -hmm. around the country and around the state where you see these ambitious goals and then um, you see even more ambitious goals being set by other cities. And we're starting to see that at the state level. And I would love to hear your thoughts on what the state of Michigan could do if a carbon neutrality goal could be in the, the future for our state um, yeah. to move forward in this direction. Yeah, we know it has to be. Absolutely. And I think I give you guys a lot of credit too, because I know you've been really organizing a lot of the coordination and the charge to 
to have Michigan be a real leader in this landscape. And I think I would first like to applaud the governor for joining the U.S. Um, Climate Alliance right out the gate, which is a coalition of governors. Yes, great job. Uh, a coalition of governors that are working collaboratively on climate action. And so that was a really, a really, really big step. Going forward, I think there's absolutely no reason why Michigan couldn't declare itself, you know, as, as a leader in this space and aim for carbon neutrality within state operations, but then for the entire state itself. It's hard, but it's definitely not going to happen with wishful thinking, right? Setting a goal, um, I'm going to turn on my social scientist hat for a second. Um, human beings, the vast majority of us are not inspired with disaster. Right? We're not inspired by doom and gloom stories. We are inspired by a vision and a vision that we can see ourselves being a part of. And visionary leadership is something I think, especially in this moment in time, we are all hungry for. And so having a visionary statement with a visionary leader who said, this is where we're going. And you know what? I don't have all the answers, but I'm going to invest in the people and our place and our ingenuity to unlock that potential. That's transformative. And someone's gonna figure this out. We have to, as a, as a society, figure this out. There's economic opportunity abounding when we figure out how to do this. Job creation, I mean, I just had a solar installer reach out to us last week and say one of the programs we're piloting, we've only done three pilots on a solar program. And he's like, this has been so successful, I've already hired two more people to join my wow. team. Right? Like, wow. we are gonna hire people. We won't even have enough people right now capable of doing this. The skills training, the economic development, the improvement in quality of life. I mean, all of that just to me aligns with exactly what Michigan is, why I love being here, and I think why most people want to continue to be here. It's, it's yeah. a huge opportunity. Yeah. I want to get back to, you talked about equity, how a just transition is at the core of this plan and of this work in Ann Arbor. And your office is committed to, and I'm going to quote from your plan, to ensuring this climate work improves the lives of Ann Arbor residents who have been historically underrepresented and under-resources, and that that quality is embedded in all of the work we do, from the programs, to the stakeholders, to the advisors we seek. And so um, how, can you talk a little bit more specifically about how you're doing that work to center equity and also local value in, in your work? Yeah, it is multi-pronged. It is growing. And I would say to anyone listening to this who has ideas for how we can be better, um, a core tenet is being authentic about this and acknowledging we don't have all of the answers. And so we, we look to others quite a lot. Building off your last question, um, Ann Arbor, like states, is highly networked as a municipality, and we're in a group of sustainability directors called the Urban Sustainability Directors Network. And one of the core tenets in the USDN network now is equity. And to be a sustainability officer, you have to go through equity training, and you have to agree to kind of equity principles. So we are committed to having all of our staff continue to go through that deep training, which is not it's not a checkbox, right? That's a lifelong journey that we will all go on. Um, so that's kind of a core tenet. We also have been working to run equity trainings for city staff outside of our unit because it's not enough for us to think about this, right? Like it has to permeate the culture of the city. Mm -hmm. um, we have sought out partners in our carbon neutrality work that are from uh, traditionally marginalized populations. So we bring their voices to the fore and they're really at the table making the decisions. We, and that includes the um, whole spectrum, right? It's certainly our local NAACP chapter, but it's also our affordable housing colleagues and not just the people working for affordable housing, but the people in affordable housing, you know, who, whose life is just a different journey than I'm on. 
Um, we are working with low-income seniors. We have a program that we just launched and we're actually hoping to hire a handful of low-income seniors as advisors to that program as we set it up. Um, you may not know this, I am not a low-income senior. So setting up a program for low-income seniors, I'm, I just don't know that lived experience. And so it's really providing opportunity to bring people to the table to make decisions about their lives and their community as opposed to us making it. And it's also finding ways to compensate them for that, right? Like their time is valuable and should be recognized and appreciated in those discussions. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing we're starting um, is a youth ambassador program. We're also starting a neighborhood ambassador program, but it's a little different. Youth are gonna be impacted the longest in terms of the choices that we do and do not make today. And they are often uh, the most unrepresented voice that we hear in discourse. And so we've been working with a number of our youth leaders in the community, um, those who really stood up around climate action, those who stood up around equity right now, um, those who are calling out you know, racial discrimination and, and screaming at the top of their lungs. We're sort of like, yes, we hear you, lead, right? Like what administrative support do you need right now? We will help you, you lead this movement. And so we have a youth ambassador program that we're working with a bunch of youth to actually create right now. And hopefully we'll launch in the fall, if not slightly earlier, depending on what's in my inbox when we get off this call. But yeah. <laughs> those are just some examples. And I'm sure I'm forgetting many others. Um, I, I think, you, Kate, you might know this too. For our partner organization, one last example I'll give. When we had our partners sign up, uh, we had one meeting where we kind of introduced them to the carbon neutrality work and the journey. And then the second meeting that we held was an equity training where we brought all of our partner organizations together and said, if, if you're with us, this is what, this is at the core of what we're doing. And we, we hired an equity trainer to lead us all through that process, which for some people, old, old hat, right? Like they know this, this is the core of what they do, but for many organizations, that's, and for many people, we've done a really poor job of having honest conversations mm -hmm. in particular about racial equity and racial inequality in our society. And so that was a space for us as a community to say, yes, we're all focused on carbon neutrality, but we also have to be focused on in particular racial equity in this work too. Mm -hmm. Great. I think that's just such a critical part of this work. And I think that you're centering it is, is um, exactly where it needs to be. Yeah, agreed. And, and uh, watching the recent uh, COVID pandemic and seeing that hit the state and cities and particularly impacting folks who are often on the front lines with health issues, how is that changing the way you're thinking about this plan or how has it accelerated, slowed down or modified it? Sort of a, a pivot. You know, I think all three of these things, when we talk about COVID, when we talk about uh, climate change, and we talk about racial inequality, there are some really strong parallels that I see. One is all of them are showing us who's disproportionately impacted and burdened by these choices, right? So we look at COVID and we're talking about our black and brown brothers and sisters, right, who are disproportionately impacted. And there's a lot of reasons for that. And one of them is because we put all of our extractive industries in their backyards and we force them to breathe the air or drink the water that is contaminated with the fuel that is historically powered our lives, right? And our privilege has powered our privilege. Um, we think about, I think about it from the standpoint of planning policies, right? You think about redlining and this idea that we have put in place systems that have stolen wealth from communities or at least denied them access to wealth and opportunity to accumulate wealth over time. And those have to be remedied and those have to be openly acknowledged in our conversations. And, and all of that is connected, right? COVID-19 is worse in certain places for reasons. And it's not, it's, it's not chance, 
right? Like this is, this is structural racism at, at play. And it's the same with climate change. I mean, our frontline communities that disproportionately are gonna feel the impacts are not those who contributed to the problem the most by and large. So it, it continues to perpetuate. And I think it would be a great disservice to all of us if we didn't openly acknowledge that and think about solutions that attempt to rectify wrongs that have been done historically as we go forward in finding solutions to climate change or whatever it is we're trying to find solutions for. Support for this episode of the Speaking of Resilience podcast is provided by Harvest Solar. Harvest Solar is a family-owned solar sales, design, and insulation company that provides cost-effective renewable energy for agriculture, commercial, and residential customers throughout the Midwest. Thriving on exceeding expectations, Harvest Solar is passionately involved in an emerging industry that is essential for the environment, great for the customer, and welcomed for generations to come. Going solar is an easy and affordable option with Harvest Solar, who provide a wide range of products and custom engineered systems. Visit their website at harvestsolar.com to learn about your potential savings while becoming more energy independent. We also have support from Desmond Liggett Wealth Advisors, where Matt Desmond and Zach Liggett work closely with clients to thoughtfully and confidently navigate today's unprecedented challenges. Locally owned and strictly fee only, Desmond Liggett emphasizes comprehensive financial planning and responsible, proactive investment strategies built to meet near-term needs and to attain long-term goals. If you are seeking impact and resilience in your financial life, the team at Desmond Liggett would love to chat. Learn more at desmondliggett.com. Yeah, you mentioned a, a whole bunch of partners and one in particular. So Kate and I are both Wolverines, as are you, as we learned at the beginning of this interview. Right. Wondering about town and gown and both the wonderful opportunities and the big hurdles to working in a city that's huge part of is the university, both the emissions and the financial and the economic development. So for can sure. you talk a little bit about that, what that experience has been like? Yeah, for sure. So to kind of ground it, about a third of the emissions that come out of Ann Arbor from the University of Michigan, right? Wow. So if we're going to actually achieve carbon neutrality, we really do have to do that in partnership. Um, also, you know, if you're sitting at the university, your students live in this community, your faculty, you know, many of them do, many want to but can't, you know, you're using the roads. And so the partnership really um, has to be robust. And so there's a few ways that we have started to work. There's a legacy of working together. I'm going to focus more on since I've been at the city, which is just about two years now, around our carbon work. One is we have a lot of university representatives that the university was a formal partner, but we also formed technical advisory commissions um, or committees that helped us in four core areas figure out what we technically needed to do to achieve carbon neutrality and University of Michigan faculty and staff are all over those committees, right? On the other side, the University of Michigan has a President's Commission on Carbon Neutrality that is trying to figure out what uh, the university could do to achieve carbon neutrality and what the goal for the university should be. And there's one community seat on that and I happen to have it. So I sit on that commission and um, get to kind of share experiences back and forth, get to extract really great things and tie them into our work. 
in our governance model for us, we're proposing that we form, for the city of Ann Arbor, that we form a staff coalition of the major institutions that work on carbon neutrality. So that would be Ann Arbor Public Schools, the University of Michigan, the city of Ann Arbor, our utility, and probably um, some business allies. And that together we would, we would be collectively fundraising, collaborating, sharing information back and forth. So that's a model that we have proposed to go forward with. The one thing I will say, because I get this a lot and you didn't ask me this, but I'm just going to kind of like put it on the table. Our processes are different. And I think that is worthwhile calling out. They are not right and they are not wrong. They're just different. So the university uh, decided to do a very methodical review and figure out what was possible, right? So that's what's happening right now. An interim report just came out and they're really doing deep critical analysis. Like what can we do? What's it going to cost? And so when they make a commitment, they will have a plan and that plan will be robust, right? And they will know it's achievable. The city went in an alternative direction and we set what I call the moonshot goal. We said, we don't know how we're gonna do it, but we're gonna figure out how to be carbon neutral by 2030. Now go figure it out and come back to us. That is not a better approach, it is a different approach. And so sometimes we feel tension in that because we're done, right? Like we've already got this, now we have this goal at the gate, we now have a plan that's been adopted and we are sprinting at implementation. If anyone has read our plan, however, you'll see two numbers for a handful of actions. You'll see the number if the university's in, and you'll see the number if the university's not in. And that's because they're not done with their plan. We don't know if they'll be in alignment. So we'll have to revisit that once they finish their plan. Yeah. Thanks, Dan. And you talk about your plan, and you mentioned earlier, you know, a couple of the strategies. Um, for listeners who maybe wondering like what exactly, what else is involved in carbon neutrality? Can you talk mm -hmm. through maybe some of the more, some of the other strategies or just some of the more um, interesting, unusual, not just moving off of um, fossil fuels for electricity because we've all been working at that for a little while, but some of the other ways that we need to address in order to be carbon neutral? Yeah, definitely, Kate. And happy to talk about any of the actions too, but I'll start on the strategy level. Um, and I just want to say this is our plan, not my plan. This is Andrew's <laughs> plan. I really have to pivot that narrative because if you, anyway. Uh, so the seven overarching strategies in the plan, the first is powering our system with 100% clean and renewable energies, uh, energy. The second is electrification. So mass electrification. And we talked about this before. Um, this is in some areas, a really easy strategy to see, like in the vehicle market, I mean, EVs are just taken off in terms of what's viable. And we'll see that over the next three to five years. I mean, the market is just going to be massively transformed. It's already happening. And EVs are starting to hit close to cost parity. So that's easier to understand. We're also talking about all of the appliances and the homes and businesses we're sitting into, right? Like, so how are we electrifying those? And in Michigan, we have really cheap natural gas rates at least in our service territory, and our electric rates are far too high. I'm going to go on record and I'm going to say it, like if you look across the Great Lakes, we pay the highest, um, we pay the, high, the highest rates of electricity. Now, when you think about what the cleanest form of energy is and the cheapest form of energy, it's renewables. The cheapest form of energy to put on the grid right now is renewable energy. It's wind followed by solar. And so we are paying a lot more money than almost everyone else for old, antiquated, literally killing us fuel sources not okay, right? So a lot of our actions are talking about how we're disrupting that system. And not surprisingly, a lot of the pushback is how we're going to disrupt that system because that system is entrenched and that system has a lot of political power. And so we spend a lot of time really thinking about how we're pushing on that system. So that's only strategy two. Um, strategy three, one that all of us have worked on for a long time, energy efficiency. 
massive energy efficiency improvements in every part of our life. What's different with this strategy from anyone who's worked in the field is we're actually not saying efficiency first. We're saying efficiency and. So we're trying to create programs where people are doing efficiency while they're doing solar or while they're doing electrification. Uh, because we, if we're really going to hit carbon neutrality, we can't come back to the same home five or six times, right? Like we, we've got to be yeah. real efficient mm. with our own time. The fourth was the one that always gave me the most heartburn. And I'll tell you, COVID actually has shown me what's possible in this. And that is a 50% reduction in vehicle miles traveled in our community. So COVID has shown us um, work from home policies for a large number of people are far more viable than I ever thought possible. Um, it's shown me what streets look like when we prioritize bikes and pedestrians on them in most of our communities. And I can see a path for how we might be able to transition in a way I, I honestly could not pre-COVID. Uh, the fifth is reducing the amount of materials we consume and dispose of. It's inherently about getting to a more circular economy. So it's really questioning um, what's in this water bottle and what am I going to do with it when I'm done with it? How does it go to a useful purpose? Um, and Honestly, do I need that many Amazon deliveries in my neighborhood in one week? Can we coordinate? Are there things here? I mean, a lot around kind of personal choice in that, mm -hmm. but then also sending market signals upstream and downstream about what to do with goods. Um, the sixth is about resilience, because even despite all of our best interests in getting to zero emissions, climate change is already here. We're already experiencing the impacts. We're trying to prevent those impacts from getting worse. And so we have to invest in the resilience of our people and our place our ecosystems, et cetera. So it's all focused on resilience, which again, permeates the whole plan. And then the seventh, I think I got to seven. Uh, the seventh is about, it's sort of a catch-all, we call it the other category, but it's things that don't belong in any one of those other strategies because they belong in every one of the other, other strategies. So it's our equity work. We run a grant program in Ann Arbor where residents can get up to $10,000 to do something related to sustainability in the public space. And so I can't tell you where that fits because it could fit anywhere. And then carbon offsets are on the table for consideration for us, again, because we don't know what the U is going to do. And so we have to have that on the table openly being discussed. That's great. I mean, there you have it, folks. That's what we need to do to get to carbon neutrality. And did you have any other models that you were able to look at? Or are you really kind of one of the first cities to be planning it out at this level of detail? No. Um, so... Okay, so a few things to add to that. One is this is probably where my PhD is going to come into play in that part of what I did in my PhD was, well, I just want to also say this because I think this is important for folks to not think I'm super theoretical, although I can be, I can be if I need to be, that I worked 50%, like I worked half time uh, in the field while I was doing my PhD to stay really connected to practice. And the reason that's important for me is because the element of my PhD I'm going to talk about was focused on what makes a plan implementable, right? And so I was talking to practitioners and working on developing plans while I was doing my PhD. And so I looked across, I actually read every publicly available climate adaptation plan in the country and created this like scoring matrix. And so I knew what was leading to higher implementation versus what was not. And so I was looking for those variables. So from that standpoint, I extracted from lots of communities when we were doing A20 and setting up that structure. So we knew things like, we had to be super clear on who was responsible for implementing this action, right? We needed to have benchmarks and targets so that we could be tracking and holding ourselves accountable to this work. So that played into it as well as kind of the, we talk about it in terms of like a funnel to get to the plan at the end. Inputs into that funnel were everything from our technical advisors, 
lots of public engagement. We ran three public surveys. We hosted 68 public events. You know, we worked with our partner organizations. We also talked to peers around the nation and around the world who were doing work on climate action, progressive work. There's something called the Carbon Neutral Cities Alliance. And so we were stealing profusely from, you know, folks like Copenhagen and Minneapolis. Um, actually, we talked to our colleagues in Minneapolis quite a lot. Um, some parallels there, some of the things we're trying to do. And then we looked at the literature, right? The peer-reviewed and the great literature. So drawdown, we use drawdown, of course we did. Like, I, I'll tell you, honestly, one of the last days of the plan before it went live, I was reading drawdown. I don't know that anyone reads drawdown in that way, like from A to B, I wasn't doing that. I was like afterwards, like skimming it, seeing like, what did we forget? What did we forget? And we forgot refrigerants. And so like that went in in the end because it's not sexy. People aren't thinking about refrigerants, but they have huge global warming potentials. So like the peer reviewed literature as well as like the gray literature also played a role in what we were doing. That is a longer answer than you wanted. Sorry, Kate. That's great. And I'm glad you made the connection to Drawdown. We actually interviewed the executive director, Jonathan Foley. Great. Yeah. You're in great company. Yeah. He's fabulous. That's awesome. I'm um, question for you about uh, working with local utilities. So you know, I know there are many ways to skin a cat and, and get renewables up. You could do it mm -hmm. on residential rooftops. You could do it in small local community arrays. You could buy into projects from around the state or out of state even. How has that path been and what would you advise to others looking to work with their utilities on trying to figure out local solutions amidst this sea of cheap renewables from elsewhere? <clears throat> cheap in quotes. Yeah, well, I will say we rely on folks like Groundworks to help us figure this out the Groundwork Center and others around the state too, as we navigate this the Environmental Law and Policy Center, others kind of thinking about what really is vanguard in this space, as well as what's, what's appropriate. So I, I think the very first thing I would say, and I'm sure you say this too, is what are your goals, right? Like what is it you're trying to achieve? Mm -hmm. And so I can tell you my goals. I can't necessarily tell you the entire community's goals because some of the things we're talking about are gonna have to go to a referendum of the mm -hmm. people and we'll know at that point. But for me, it's additionality, right? So are we moving anything on the grid? I, I don't want wrecks. And I don't want wrecks from Reggie where they're already being traded and I'm kicking someone else off. I understand they're cheap. It's not what I'm looking for. So I want to know that additional additionality. So I, I move something. Ideally, I want that additionality to displace fossil fuels. Um, I want that to be invested, ideally, in a community that's been disproportionately burdened by our extractive industries. So I want an environmental justice lens to that, and I want the people in that place to be hired and have those jobs. And in a dream world, it's in Michigan, right? Um, sure, I would love it in Ann Arbor. I happen to know we don't have a lot of land, right? And we've already done analysis of rooftop potential. I think our best case scenario is somewhere around 78 megawatts we can get through rooftop. That's not anything to like shriek at. That's a lot of renewables but it's not four to 500 megawatts, which is what we're gonna need, right? So we don't have the space to do everything we need to do locally, so we're gonna have to go outward. So the very first suggestion I have to folks is just figure out what your goals are, right? And, and when, if your goal is just carbon neutrality and you don't care where, well, that opens up different opportunities. If your goal is local job creation, well, that's a different path that you may take. So I don't think there's a right or a wrong answer. It's just to be really clear about kind of where you wanna go. In terms of the utility partnership, um, you know, we don't, we have an investor owned utility. We don't have a municipal utility here. So we have to operate within that landscape. We don't have choice really in the market. I mean, retail choice is pretty much subscribed in perpetuity, right? Like, so we don't have a lot of options here. So we are um, trying to work in partnership to the fullest extent possible with our utilities. We 
did a brief for about 48 executives at um, our utility about our carbon neutrality work. And then the following week or two weeks after, they did a brief for us on their goals around carbon neutrality. And so we were trying to find common ground, but I'm not gonna be Pollyanna-ish about this. I'm gonna tell you very clearly, there are areas where we do not agree. And, and it's an existential angst um, and worry for them about some of the things that we're trying to do. And we, we know that. And so we're open to creative solutions with them, but what's not movable are those core tenets and values we have. Right. So that's why I said, start with what your values are in terms of why you're doing this and what's bringing you to the conversation, because I think that's where we have to stay true. I don't know what our energy markets are going to look like in five years or seven years or 10 years, to say the least. But I, I hope that my values don't move and I hope that our values don't move from that point in time. So mm -hmm. I don't think I directly answered your question. I have a sense you might have a very specific question, but I'm going to, I'm going to go with a more broad one to start. No, it's a wonderful answer. Thanks. Thanks. And what would you tell other cities who are, you know, interested in setting goals, are motivated by the climate crisis and interested in doing something similar to what Ann Arbor did, but are just kind of getting started? What would you, you know, what are your, what's your advice or what are some of the necessary ingredients to getting it done? I, that's an excellent question. That's an excellent question, Kate. And I, I mean, my mind is spinning because I'm thinking about the specifics of who they are and where they, where yeah. they sit, right? You know, like having this conversation for those on the line, you know, I spend more time, honestly, talking to folks like Joel in Detroit or Allison in Grand Rapids because we, you know, we have a, we're staff people, right? Like we talk and we have similar goals and similar air quote sized big old mm -hmm. air quote around similar on the sizing part. But generally speaking, what I would say is find partners, leverage partners and other organizations to do this work. None of us will ever have enough staff to do this by ourselves. Mm. Is it possible? Right. Yeah. And the time and the urgency of the issue necessitate that we go now with partners and allies. And so I think reaching out and finding the community groups, the universities or the institutions that exist, um, the nonprofits that are either operating at the state level or in your backyard and leveraging their expertise and really being open to help. It's a hard thing for humans to do, but like opening yourself up to receive that assistance is really, really important. For those who are a little further along, I will give the harder message, which is to be uncomfortable that the job, um, to me at least, of a sustainability director is to disrupt. And that is never comfortable. The status quo is always the easiest thing. All of, we hate change, like human beings do, we like dream about a new home and we dream about living somewhere luxurious, but the idea of actually like following through with that is terrifying for most of us. And what is true when you look at things like climate models, the status quo is unbearable. Right, like I don't want to go there, and I'm not going to leave that future to my five-year-old without at least fighting tooth and nail to prevent that from happening. And then, what about the injustices we talked about in this program? For a whole lot of people, going back to what we had pre-COVID is also intolerable. And so, it seems to me, at least from where I sit, like the only option we have is to disrupt that status quo. But that means being uncomfortable. And that also means acknowledging some of us have different power and privilege in those conversations. I have a lot of power and a lot of privilege where I sit in the city of Ann Arbor and I need to openly acknowledge that and use that 
but I don't ask other people on my team to use that power and privilege in the same way because that's not fair or representative of where they sit in that position. So I think for anyone, I would say build partnerships. And then as you build that partnerships, you need to do some power mapping and understand where the systems are that need to be pushed on and perhaps even broken um, and recreated. Whew. Great. <laughs> Love that answer. Yes. Similar, similarly, you work with a lot of young people and on this podcast, we like to ask all of our guests um, about actions that people can take, but especially young people, because you do, you know, you, you talked about your relationship with the University of Michigan. You work with a lot of students, I'm sure. What would you, what would your message be to young people who want to take action on climate change and injustice and where to start? Yeah, I, honestly, this is my authentic response is they, they probably know better than we do um, where to disrupt the system. They've been very, very successful in that disruption over the last several weeks and, and months. But the place I would tell people um, from kind of position I sit in and the advantage that I have is call and talk to your elected leaders, right? That most elected leaders, especially at a local level, are on most issues hearing from 10, 15 people. Right? They're not hearing from as many people as you think. And when you talk to them and share your views, that carries a lot of weight. And that's, sure, a form email is fine. Like that's, that's like the easiest way into the conversation. But actually sending an email or picking up the phone is even better to call folks and tell them how you feel and what you think about an issue. That's really powerful. Um, of course, if they can, voting, you know, when the time is right and when they're of age is essential, especially in a democratic process our democratic society. Um, we also vote in our system as a capitalist system with our dollar. And so what you invest in and what you do not invest in has a really, really important significance. What you choose to buy and what you don't choose to buy or who you bank with has importance and carries weight. Um, and then if you happen to be in a place like Ann Arbor, or even if not, you know, we've just, um, it took us a while, but we opened up our environmental commission and our youth commission, which are two advisory commissions. And we opened up the bylaws and added two youth seats to those so that we're making youth voice actually come into the democratic process and be heard through that process. So if you're here, please apply for those seats if you're interested in engaging more formally. If you're not, push on your, your local government to open those kinds of positions up for youth voices so that they're actually elevated. Even better, form a parallel youth commission, right? Um, I have some very crazy ideas. It's not going to surprise anyone who's hearing this. You know, I'm going to probably get in trouble for saying this out loud, but one idea I have is what if you have two democratically elected bodies? What if you have a city council with 60% of the, the weight on a vote and a youth council that has 40% of the weight on every vote? Like what if we just change the way we make decisions in our society? Mm. I'm probably going to get fired, but that's why. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so to keep challenging Thanks. the system, I think it's critical. Yeah. Yeah, I think you have lots of good ideas and I think, and a lot of energy. I think that's, that's awesome. Any last words, anything you want to add that we haven't asked you about? I love this question. I think the only thing I would end with is this is an all hands on deck moment, no matter where you are in society. And no matter what motivates you about this issue or racial injustice or COVID injustices or climate change, whatever it may be, um, this is a moment in time where transformation is possible. It's called a disaster window of opportunity and kind of theoretical literature. And that window will close. 
right? At some point, things will go back to something and it'll be a lot harder to affect change. And this is the exact moment when it's really important for people to step up and to get involved and to push for change because it's actually possible and it won't be easy. And I, I don't want to make this at all naive for folks or sound naive. Um, this will be hard, but there is great potential in this moment to be better to do better and to be far more inclusive and to create a future that we all wanna be a part of. And I'm excited about that moment. And I think it's um, for those who are ready, that this is your chance to engage. If you've never engaged before or if you've been waiting for an opportunity to scale up your engagement, I think this is the moment. Great. Amazing. <laughs> Thank you, Missy. Yeah, Thank thanks, you so much Missy. for joining us today. You guys are awesome. Thank you for all your work. Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast, supported by Harvest Solar and Desmond Liggett Wealth Advisors. If you appreciate this content, become a podcast supporter at groundworkcenter.org slash podcast. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast wherever you listen in. Subscribe to our newsletter and follow us on Facebook at Groundwork Center and at Michigan Climate Action Network. Speaking of Resilience is created by the Groundwork Center for Resilient Communities and the Michigan Climate Action Network. This episode was produced by Miriam Owsley and Jeff Smith and hosted by Kate Madigan and Dan Worth.